I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, everyone. It's I'm back. It's your friendly neighborhood emergency doc. Last but not least, this is Praz the Sandman, shutting down your executive functions through the IV and over the radio waves. Fantastic segue, as always, because this week I figured we would touch on a topic that's been in the news quite a lot lately. And that, of course, is the health of the president and not just our current president, but I'd like to talk about the health of American presidents in general. And let's get a little peek inside the White House. More more to this than I think any of us realized as we researched this. And I think our audience would be kind of surprised by some of the stuff we found, too. You know, before we get into some of that. I I think we should certainly address the elephant in the room since it is a Republican administration. Let's talk a little bit about a few things that I think are assumptions people have made and try and disillusion. I am going to say at the top of the episode that while I do definitely have my own political leanings, this is really going to be focused on what White House medicine is about and not any kind of rant one way or the other on what the administration is doing politically. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to have fun with medicine. So wherever, whatever your political beliefs may be, I think you have a lot you can learn from this episode. So let's start with asking, is the president of the United States required to have an annual physical exam? What do you guys think? Um, I would probably lean towards no. Well, I never thought it would make sense for anyone that require to be required to have a physical exam, except... I guess the military. I guess the military is the only place in, you know, in the government where I think you would you would be required to have a physical exam. Yeah, he's the commander in chief of the military. So this is not 
you know, an out of the an, an unreasonable question to be asking. Although, whenever people ask things like this, especially using words as charged as required, my follow up questions are always required by who, who specifically enforces that requirement, and what happens when the requirement is not met. And if you can't answer all three of those questions, it's probably not a requirement at all. And that's what we learned with the tax returns and some of the other issues. So. Based on that, uh, who is really going to enforce the president getting a physical I mean, exam? I would have thought the Surgeon General would have done it, but apparently that's not the case. Nobody in this country is really required to see a doctor or get any sort of, like you, me, or anyone else. So if we don't face any consequences for it, I couldn't imagine the president would have to face any such consequences either. In fact, the very first rule of medical ethics is, above all else, patient autonomy. Patient autonomy meaning the patient gets to make their own decisions about their own body. And while it is certainly preferred that whoever is going to be leading the country be able to withstand the rigors of the position, there is no actual legal requirement regarding the president's physical health, nor is the president under any legal obligation to assess his health or to disclose it. What most people are referring to is just a convention that's existed really only for most of the 20th century, where both presidents as well as candidates have typically done an annual physical and released a physician's statement attesting to their fitness. However, this is entirely at their choosing. They can vet it at whatever level they wish. And what gets communicated is also entirely up to them. So it's a lot closer to a press release from a communications office than it is a truly independent health assessment. And a lot of presidents can and have decided to just not do it at all. Or they can withhold or flat out lie about very significant health or health events or conditions. And we're going to talk about a few presidents in the past who have done just that. Uh, they've had strokes, cancers, heart attacks, dementia, uh, kidney diseases, and more while in office without informing the public. There was nothing illegal about it, and most of them have managed to lead just fine. Ooh, that brings me up to an interesting tangent in that, hey, as doctors, are we obligated to report anything? And can are we allowed to report uh, any medical issues against our patients' wills? Well, I mean... As far as I understand, at least in all of our experiences, obviously none of us have taken care of presidents or anybody who's of a significant sense of power. But um, other than psychiatrists, where and if we did, because they, we they tell you. have to, other than psychiatrists who have to report patients who are homicidal and pose a direct threat to others or themselves. I don't know that any other physician is really required to speak on behalf of a patient's health condition. I'd, I'd agree with Praz, Ward. As far as I know, the only time that you truly have to break patient-doctor confidentiality or the only time you are allowed or encouraged to is really if the patient poses a direct threat of harm to another person. If the direct threat of harm is to themselves, you're still trying to intervene but I don't know if even that is strong enough to override confidentiality and autonomy. Uh, in the state of California, where I practice, I can think of two instances where you have to, regardless of the patient's will, uh, report oh. medical conditions. And one of them Ooh, is... tuberculosis. I forgot about that. One of them is, you know, like you said, medically uh, contagious conditions that are tracked by the uh, public health department. So 
tuberculosis, syphilis, sexually transmitted infections, we have to report to the local public health department. In addition, if someone is has a disability that impairs them from driving, such as if you pass out, if you have a seizure disorder, if you have a condition that makes it dangerous for you to drive, we actually have to report them to oh. the DMV and ask them not to drive. You know, like Praz mentioned and like Josh mentioned, obviously, if you're homicidal or suicidal, then that we, we have to intervene and uh, get other agencies involved. Other than that, I can't really think of an instance when we really disclose a patient's information without their permission. Yeah, and if we don't do it for our patients, the president, no matter how powerful he may be, is still another patient, and we are not under obligation to disclose anything about it. Now, that doesn't mean the public's not interested and that it is not a good idea to kind of have that information for a public figure, but it's not illegal. And I think the closest we have, at least at the presidential level, the 25th Amendment, which has certainly got a lot of play in the news cycle recently, but even that's pretty vague and not automatic. And and we'll go into that a bit later in the show. But when the president does have his health assessed, which is, again, completely at his own discretion. He can choose whoever he wants to do it and give them whatever instructions he likes. Some presidents have gone out of their way to have their fitness judged by military physicians with sterling reputations and judgments who we feel are independently arrived at and beyond reproach. Others, you know, just ask someone to write them a doctor's (laughs) note. Maybe their publicist or somebody like that. Before this devolves into... Focusing on just one president, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the past presidents who have had health issues. And nearly half of the presidents in our nation's history, and again, President Trump is number 45, for those of you playing along, half of our presidents have had pretty significant illnesses or injuries while in office, including most of the presidents since the start of the 20th century. And there's been academic research conducted fairly extensively on this, with a lot of those presidents hiding their health problems from the public. So let's let's look at a couple and talk about them. Grover Cleveland, I believe from the song is Grover Cleveland, really fat, elected twice as a Democrat, Mm -hmm. uh, had a secret surgery for oral cancer during his second term in 1893. He survived and served until 1897, but his surgery was not revealed to the public until 1917, nine years after his death. Do you think it's really of the public's, if if it's any of our business that he had oral cancer? Something like that probably... Maybe not necessarily. I mean, then again, consider that in 2017, oral cancer can be removed pretty exquisitely. I don't know what surgery was like in 1893, what the mortality was from oral cancer. Maybe then it was a much bigger deal than it is now. Well, remember, 1893 uh, predates most modern anesthesia techniques. It's, it was largely a bottle of whiskey and a little bit of ether or chloroform. And even then, most surgeries were still uh, largely hatchet jobs. So finding out that you had a cancer that would have to be operated on, and certainly one that would be very, very risky given the anesthetic techniques at the time, probably is why he kept it secret. You know, this is a surgery that today we don't think about, but he easily could have died from with the medical care available back at the time. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, even, even, um, even in 
you know, the 2000s, uh, people die from routine, small outpatient appointments, you know, r- procedures like, um, oh gosh, what was that comedian's name who died from a, you know, uh, Joan Rivers? Larynx, uh, polyp removal. Joan Rivers, yeah. That's one. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had a very serious stroke in 1919 that, in effect, ended his ability to run the country. But the condition was kept secret, and it was his wife who took over his work until his term ended in 1921. So, yeah. In all honesty, it almost sounds like an episode of Game of Thrones, which is probably why a lot of these conditions are kept secret. A lot of the people who are behind the scenes may have wanted to have a public image that everything was okay and that he was not having any issues so that they could continue to um, run things from behind the scenes. Well, I I don't think Edith (laughs) poisoned Woodrow Wilson to assume power, but certainly once he was unable to carry out his duties rather than face sort of the public court of opinion or shaming about a president who really wouldn't even – be able to move independently, much less whatever language and speech deficits he may have had, his wife could simply say, okay, I know what kind of things he would do, and I'm going to take over as his caregiver. And unfortunately, that, or fortunately, happened to also be the caregiver for the whole country. And and he's not the first one who the wife has taken a much more active role as the president's health has failed. Uh, certainly, the Reagans also, yeah, I believe, yeah, come well, to mind. Well, Reagan, remind me, he was starting to have Alzheimer's during his presidency. Wasn't that the speculation? That, that was the speculation. Now, in terms of presidents who had very obvious conditions, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, good old FDR, uh, had a very difficult to hide condition, which is paralysis yeah. caused by polio, which did not prevent him from taking office and serving with distinction starting in the 1930s. Uh, However, he did suffer from congestive heart failure that was kept secret for many, many years. And by his fourth campaign in 1944, he was very obviously failing and, you know, had difficulty even performing the fireside radio chats. He did win that election and then died of a cerebral hemorrhage in April of 1945, which left Vice President Truman to finish World War II. And Well, even if you think back to the original president, President George Washington famously had wooden teeth. You know, that is that is actually a fallacy, Ward. He had dentures, but they were not wooden. They were made from a number of things, including hippopotamus teeth, as well as the teeth of slaves. Uh, which is wow. So oh, that's so much worse. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so I feel wooden like teeth. wooden teeth is probably a, it's a better story along with the I cannot tell a lie through my wooden teeth as opposed to hippo and slave dentures. Oh, slave dentures are terrible. But what you know, traditionally and historically, our presidents have all always been older yeah, uh, gentlemen. To- but the age requirement is what thirty five, thirty. Yeah, it's, it's an age minimum. Not, it's an not, age minimum. But when in fact, people who were, are elected into office tend to be, generally tend to run on the older side. And, you know, when do you, when we run into our 40s, 50s, 60s, oh gosh, you know, in President Trump's case, 70s, health problems inevitably come up. I mean, I very few people in their 70s have zero health right. problems. That's just the way it is. Yeah. So before before we point fingers, you know, keep in mind, he's a 70 year old man. He's the fact that he has health, you know, regardless of carrying extra pounds either way, um, 
being healthy as a 71 year old is quite an accomplishment, especially to only be on three or four pills. Jumping back over, John F. Kennedy. Now, here's where we start getting into some of the ones where they would fudge the details. John F. Kennedy, we all learned in medical school, had Addison's disease, which is an adrenaline deficiency. And his team denied the daylights out of that during his campaign in the 1960s. And that lie may have actually helped Kennedy win a razor thin margin against Richard Nixon, because if it was known that two candidates are running against each other and one simply did not have the health or stamina or a condition that could put his ability to lead the country at risk, or a condition that the public itself didn't understand, that could have turned the tide of an election very quickly. So keeping that to himself may have given Kennedy the presidency. There's nothing illegal with doing that. Correct. Although I feel like President Kennedy had a lot of untold stories that to this day are still untold. (laughs) Yeah. There were a lot of issues with Kennedy completely separate from his health. But as I've said, we're really just going to be addressing health and health care well, on, on this they episode. They say that if Kennedy um, hadn't been assassinated, he probably wouldn't have lived much longer anyway because of his major health issues. What, what does Addison's disease do? Why would that have potentially led to a shortened lifespan for him? Do so either of you guys Addison's know? disease, uh, specifically, um, I believe is a shortage of aldosterone. Right, and that's um, a hormone that our adrenal glands secrete, basically to help us retain fluid and to maintain balance between our electrolytes, specifically sodium and potassium. So, when somebody has a deficiency in aldosterone, they tend to have very low blood pressure, they, which leads to a lot of problems. Problems getting blood flow to the brain, to the heart, and other major organs has its own issues, and. Additionally, having very high potassium levels, which can be very dangerous and can even cause cardiac arrest. Yeah, and it tends to affect people in their 30s to 50s. And it is very vague symptoms aside from a certain bronzing of the skin. Uh, And if you do have an adrenal crisis, that kind of almost fight or flight crisis, you're right. You can pass away from it almost instantly. And it is a progressive disease. Yeah, I think your body can't produce cortisol either. So cortisol is one of those stress hormones that our bodies need in times of infection, in times of uh, physical stress. And a lot of times in the ICU, if Addison's disease actually gets discovered in the ICU because people get a seemingly you know, innocuous small infection and if they get super, super sick and you find out that, oh, you know what? That's because that patient does not have any cortisol in their body right. to, to yeah. fight off the disease. Bill Clinton resisted releasing his health records during his first run in 1992. And at that time, the New York Times declared that the Democrat had been less forthcoming about his health than any presidential nominee in the last 20 years. And he just said, you know what? People don't need to know. I'm fit and you can all take my word for it. So when the president... Is it because of his love of cigars? (laughs) (laughs) That in his charts... Uh, I, you know, I did not get a chance to, to read Bill Clinton's health report in extensive detail. So I, I couldn't speak to that, but the question is, yeah, when these reports are carried out or when these physical exams are carried out, usually there is a report that is written up by the doctor and, you know, we all love paperwork and these reports vary in length as to what's released. And just a couple of examples, they tend to be done not only on existing presidents, but in election years, they are done on candidates as well. So Obama's health report and after his first annual physical was about two pages long. 
Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was about four pages long. During the most recent election, Clinton, Hillary Clinton's health report was about two pages. Uh, Trump's was four paragraphs that gave figures for his blood pressure and his prostate, said what medications he was taking, and described his health as astonishingly excellent, extraordinary, and excellent, showing that his physician tends to have the same love of hyperbole that we see so often. And the same number of yourself. I'm sorry. But all of these reports largely cover the basic things. They give what we call the vitals, blood pressure, heart rate, breathing rate, height, weight, body mass index, risks of, you know, the kind of things that you would worry about in terms of long-term health. And while none of us really are involved in that much outpatient care these days, we've certainly all had our own annual physical exams, largely that have to be done for employment purposes. My last health report, I think, was only about one or two pages itself. So this is the length is not necessarily indicative of anything, but I did find amusing that four paragraphs is probably one of the shortest health reports issued that I'm aware of. It's it's still longer than a tweet. It is still longer <laughs> than a tweet. So let's talk about what actually happens when the president needs to be treated medically for anything. Were you guys aware that there's a full White House medical unit? This is absolute news to me. The White House Medical Unit, or the WHMU, is a unit of the White House Military Office, and it's responsible for the medical needs of all staff and visitors. It provides medical care to the president, the vice president, their families, and any international dignitaries that visit the White House. The doctor for the White House has an office directly adjacent to the Oval Office, and when he's in staff is on call and able to literally just walk one door over to examine the president at a moment's notice. He lives in the White House. So he works in the White House and he often lives on the campus uh, or nearby. He doesn't necessarily reside in the White House along with the rest of the first family. Um, the, The White House medical unit is led by a director who frequently, but doesn't have to, also serve as physician to the president. And that is a formal title. Physician to the president is chosen personally by the president, while the director is formally chosen by the director of the White House military office. So it tends to be the exact same person. And in fact, has been for a while since July 2013, the physician to the president, as well as director of the White House military office has been Navy Captain Ronnie, or now Rear Admiral, Ronnie L. Jackson. I don't know. I think, I feel like that when you have a patient, essentially a patient panel of one, that sounds like a dream job for, you know, a patient panel is something a um, um, a primary care physician has to deal with. It's essentially the patient caseload you have. And that's um, generally for a a full-time working private care, private uh, primary care physician, you're talking about in the thousands it's a dream job to have a patient load of only essentially one. Well, I mean, well remember, it's it's the president, the vice president, their families, and international families. dignitaries. So it's it's a yeah. pan. I mean, we're still looking at a panel of large ten to, to fifteen. Yeah. Ten to fifteen. That's a pretty good job. Except, yeah, except if you have a difficult patient. Now, yeah, that's, I don't foresee him discharging anybody from his a different practice. Story. Yeah, there's there's no firing patients from your panel when it right. the president. 
And now just as a note, even though Ronnie Jackson is a, a military physician, physicians in private practice are not barred from becoming a member of the White House medical unit staff. Remember, the physician to the president is personally chosen by the president. But since very few physicians can afford to abandon their private practice for four years, it tends to be military physician. I'll bet that salaries of the president and senators and uh, representatives is probably public knowledge. Yeah, and it, it can be looked up. And honestly, the number is not worth mentioning, but they do all right for themselves, but they could definitely make more in private practice. And that's why Trump allowed his uh, position prior to holding office. He, you know, let left his care and went under the care of this military physician, because regardless of the relationship between Trump and his personal physician, the guy could not take four years off to exclusively care for Trump, no matter how excellent his health was. But you brought up a very interesting point earlier where you said, what if you have a difficult patient? And here's the thing. Remember, most most physicians in the White House unit are military physicians, and the president is the commander in chief, which means White House military doctors are outranked so there's by their patient. A conflict of interest here. Well, everyone's outranked by their patient when their patient is the president of the United States. Yeah, yeah. But this is interesting because a few previous ones, uh, an interview with a previous White House physician, Dr. Mariano, said, you know, whenever her boss, the president, insisted on pushing the envelope, saying, I'm going to go on this trip even after having a surgery, or I'm going to continue to eat, I don't know, pounds of bacon after being warned of a heart condition. Every time Dr. Mariano pushed back, she said, visions of court-martial danced in my head. I feel like that makes it very hard to really be an advocate for the patients. I wonder how their documentation goes and how malpractice would go for them when bad outcomes happen. And, you know, how how good do you feel about telling somebody, ah, you're overweight, you're, you need to stop smoking, you need to doing this, when you are literally oh. outranked and could be court-martialed by your patient? I imagine no, it no, no, makes no. You for... Can't get, you can get court-martialed for telling... You can only court, get court-martialed, as far as I know, for doing something that's illegal, even in military law, right? Yes. If you tell your patient something they don't want to hear, and we, Josh, you and I deal with this all the time, we tell patients things they don't want to hear. <laughs> On the other hand, they are they, these are not illegal things we're telling them. These are absolute, absolutely right. good advice. It's just that people don't want to hear them. Sure. And I think largely Dr. Mariano's concerns would be, again, you know, you are not medically fit to travel and the president saying, well, be that as it may, I'm going anyway. And then you're just kind of stuck saying, uh, OK, because when your physician is the or when your patient is the president, there's really no against medical advice protections for you as such. You work with what you got. Now, this brings up the infamous 25th Amendment, which, again, uh, has been a a rallying cry for certain segments of the population over a number of inflammatory statements that have been made by the president. And let's talk a little bit about what the 25th Amendment actually says, because it has been invoked before, but not for the reasons that I think a lot of people may have wanted, or ones that you're familiar with. So I'm going to just read two sections. It largely deals with the succession if the president's ill or unable to carry out his duties. So the exact wording, uh, there's two sections I want to focus on. Section three, which says, whenever the president transmits to the president pro tempore of the Senate, 
and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, and until he transmits to them a written declaration to the contrary, such powers and duties shall be discharged by the Vice President as Acting President. That one has been invoked a couple times, and we'll go into that shortly. Section 4 says whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of other such bodies as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office of acting president. Now, to prevent a perhaps power-hungry vice president from just saying, well, president can't discharge his duties, it's me now. This section four also includes thereafter, when the president transmits himself to the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House, his declaration that no inability exists, he shall resume the powers and duties of his office unless the vice president and a majority of the principal officers of the executive department may by law transmit within four days to the Senate and the House, their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Uh, That's a lot of long-winded talk to basically say, if the vice president and the majority of... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Congress feel the president cannot act out his responsibilities they can then put the vice president in charge. And that's been a really big bone that people have been just kind of chewing on for a while. But I want to focus more on Section 3. When have we used the 25th Amendment? Well, it was proposed on July 6, 1965, and adopted on February 10, 1967. And from that time, only two people have ever been acting president under these provisions. One was George Herbert Walker Bush in 1985 and Dick Cheney in 2002 and in 2007. In all three cases, the existing president or the sit, not the existing, it's not like he didn't exist. The sitting president invoked section three of the 25th amendment when he had to undergo a colonoscopy. Two for colonoscopies, one for colon cancer surgery, meaning while he was under anesthesia and unable to discharge his duties, he said, listen, I'm going to be knocked out for a bit while it's going on. You, my vice president, are acting as president of the country. And once he recovered from the colon cancer surgery and once the other one recovered from colonoscopies, he said, 
hey, I am once again able to discharge my duties and I am resuming the presidential duties. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, President Reagan and George H.W. Uh, Bush, President Bush. Remember, there was an assassination right. attempt on President was, Ronald Reagan. During that episode, the 25th Amendment was, was actually not wound something where, you know, he needed surgery or was it something where he was still reasonably like with it to make executive decisions? I don't know much details about it. Well, that's because Section 3 requires the president to himself say that he is unable to discharge his duties. So if the president feels that he can still discharge his duties while being shot or if he is unconscious and unable to say that he can't discharge his duties, then nothing, you know, there's no way to transfer those powers over. And certainly if the president's health is in sort of a critical moment as it might be with an assassination attempt, you're not going to have the vice president and the rest of the cabinet getting together. I mean, look how hard it was just to avoid a government shutdown over the course of the weekend. And that was getting everybody together to talk about something that's non-critical from a medical standpoint. So to get all those people in a room to say, we don't think the president can discharge his duties, the situation will resolve itself long so then, before that any said, act of Congress. With the word of this WHMU director or this, his personal doctor have any weight, like medically declaring that the patient's in a coma or in a vegetative state? You know, that's very interesting that you ask. Uh, one of the director's primary official responsibilities is to advise the cabinet on the ability of the president to discharge the powers and duties of his office using the guidelines for the 25th Amendment. But all he can do is advise. That's his responsibility, just like any doctor would advise on his patient's ability to do any daily activities. But the final decision as to whether or not they believe the physician's recommendations rests with the cabinet, and it's a political, okay. not a medical right. decision. That's how things are usually done. A lot of decisions are a political. Um, so again, Ronald Reagan on July 13th, 1985, underwent surgery to remove several cancerous polyps from his colon. So he sent a letter transferring power to then Vice President George Bush, deliberately invoking the acting president clause. And he underwent surgery for prostate cancer as well. Uh, at the time that he did that, he was 76 years old. So, you yeah, know, again, 70-year-olds have health issues. The White House medical director can say, I think the president is fit to discharge his duties or is not fit to discharge his duties. And the cabinet listens to him and says, OK, we agree with you and we'll make decisions based on that. They say, that's great, but we don't really care. So in that, he doesn't really have a great deal of power to change. And that's that's actually as it should be. The nor should he, yeah. Yeah, the position have... to the president really should not be in a position right. of political power. Absolutely. His job should just be to take care of the president's health. So what else does the physician to the president and the White House medical unit do? Because you know, as I'm sure you can imagine, 25th Amendment decisions don't really take up a large amount of time. <laughs> yeah, as well, it comes up once every 100 years. <laughs> Uh, they do provide health care to the president, vice president, and all their families freely, which makes me wonder, like, if they provide all the health care for the president, like, aside from outpatient stuff, if the patient gets hurt and they had to be admitted to the hospital, possibly needing ICU care, possibly needing surgery, would they provide all that health care as well? No. White House provides free health care to president, vice president, and immediate families within the White House 
and at American military hospitals anywhere in the world, but inpatient care, meaning if the president had to stay for any length of time. And even at American military hospitals, if it's not given by physicians directly associated with the WHMU, is covered by the president's personal health insurance. So not every bit of care the president receives is free, only care given by the White House medical unit. Personal health insurance, what's that? (laughs) That's a debate for another day, my friend. Okay. Um, But in addition to the direct care duties that we've spoken about, the White House medical unit is also responsible for all medical contingency planning for the White House and its key personnel. This includes preparing for every presidential or vice presidential trip by identifying hospitals and other facilities at which medical care could be provided, with the goal being the president is never more than 20 minutes away from a hospital with a level one trauma center. If this is not possible, they ensure that a military helicopter is nearby, kept fueled, and an instant readiness to evacuate the president to an appropriate hospital. So all of a sudden, having a patient panel of one doesn't sound quite so easy when you have to trip plan and know what hospitals are within 20 minutes of anywhere the president could be. I feel like that's a lot of work. If I have a patient panel of one and he or she is high maintenance and you know, let's be honest, the president is going to be high maintenance because they're, they have, they're going to be traveling a lot and doing a lot of official duties. Yeah. Being on 24 seven is, no- that's a big deal. Do they have relief? Do they have covering physicians? Hey, you know what? I'm not on this weekend. Uh, you know, my partner is going <laughs> to take over. So at least one physician is on duty in the executive residence at all times, 24, seven, eight days a week, as the Beatles song goes. And there's actually a rule uh, because jet lag and long hours are very common among the staff. There is a rule limiting them to 24 hour duty periods, which is actually shorter than the duty periods required of our medical residents. And even of us, uh, I've worked much longer than 24 hours. Oh, yeah. With with a patient panel heavier than one. (laughs) Yeah. So. The unit usually consists of about an eight-member intensive care and surgical team, but staff almost always wear civilian street and medical clothing because even though they're employed by the military, military uniforms could draw sniper fire and prevent them from doing their jobs. Uh, If you're in an attack, certainly military targets would be high priority, and you don't want to be trying to treat people as there is usually an honor system under, I believe, the the rules of war. I will admit to not being familiar enough with them, but I know that normally medics are often felt to be protected as they will treat anyone. And you don't want to kind of make yourself a target while trying to provide <laughs> care. Oh, but they're not. I'll bet you they get shot all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's entirely possible. I just, I don't know because even though there's a lot of information available about this, certain things were just very difficult to research as I do not have government clearance. Um, But there are, in addition to the 24-hour shift limit, there are shift rotations that allow the advanced medical team to take over from traveling staff. So there'll be a medical team on the plane. There'll be a medical team waiting on the ground so the plane team can get a little bit of a break and the team is well-rested. And the White House Medical Unit also oversees the mobile medical suites aboard Air Force One and Air Force Two. 
Air Force One, which we didn't get to see in the Harrison Ford movie, contains a full surgical suite with an operating table, two beds, full resuscitation equipment and crash cart, various monitors, and a fully stocked pharmacy. Air Force Two has a first aid unit, an AED, and some oxygen tanks. Even an ambulance wouldn't have a full OR, though. That's pretty decked out. Oh, yeah, that's a giant, fancy ambulance. I I can't imagine, like, every time... I actually used used to work for an ambulance company, and it was a pain in the butt every day. In the morning, before the beginning of every shift, you have to count all your equipment supplies and make sure that you're stocked. Uh, Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine stocking an entire plane full of an operating room equipment. Honestly, I'm almost a little bit more impressed by the fact that there's a fully stocked pharmacy on Air Force One because – I remember when I was, you know, kind of called to duty on civilian flights that I happened to be the only physician on, uh, the medical supply kit, as we've talked about in a previous episode, really just consisted of Tylenol, um, some anti-anxiety medications, and uh, an oxygen tank. And that was really it. So having, you're right, a full surgical suite and a fully stocked pharmacy is really impressive. And I would expect more of them to be like Air Force Two, where it's like, well, here's a first aid kit and AED and some oxygen. Very true. (laughs) So what does the advanced medical team do when the president is traveling? They establish temporary emergency medical facilities needed to support any presidential or vice presidential trips. The advanced team consists of an eight-member intensive care and surgical team, just like who's available usually around the White House Medical Unit. The White House Medical Unit, I think, is a five-member team that's always on of two doctors and several nurses. Uh, But there is a temporary operating room available at every stop on a presidential trip. And White House staff also carry operating room equipment in backpacks to provide emergency care as needed on site. For travels overseas, the team travels ahead of Air Force One to set up facilities days in advance. So there's a fully rested team available to assist the president upon arrival, the moment of landing, and take over from the team which traveled up to and on the aircraft. Now, one of the things I thought was a little bit of a surprise to me is, in addition to learning about the existence of a White House medical unit, I thought that all presidents received their care and, in fact, had to receive their care yeah, at so the military hospital, Walter Reed. not the case? Yeah, that would seem a little inconvenient, though. Walter Reed is – I don't think that's anywhere near the White House, right? Is that in D.C.? It is. It is in D.C., or it's close to D.C., and – the history of it actually ended up being pretty fascinating, at least to me, because, you know, I'm a giant history nerd. I know this is a big shocker to our listening audience who hasn't had to put up with this for four years of me delving into unbelievable. But I'm going to take you to a different historical period. We're going to go to World War II, not my usual fare. Walter Reed Hospital originally opened on November 11th, 1940. FDR selected the original site laid the cornerstone, and made formal dedication remarks at the hospital's opening. Uh, So when the hospital was actually, it was opened in 1940, it was dedicated in 1942, and originally was meant to provide medical care to military personnel only. However, since Franklin Roosevelt had paralysis of his lower extremities, the medical center immediately offered to provide him with any medicine or treatment necessary to keep him physically fit for the presidency. And that really began the relationship between presidents and Walter Reed. And with that, 
there was an official White House doctor appointed by the president to sort out medical issues with him. So this was really the beginning of the White House medical unit. And since his time, most presidents have tended to use a military hospital close to Washington, D.C., which the two closest are either Bethesda or Walter Reed as the primary facility for them and their family to receive medical care. And as I mentioned before, any president who does stay for this inpatient pays for any of his medical expenses personally. It is, again, another convention that they often visit military hospitals because that is where care is provided for free by the White House Medical Unit. So that's kind of a a short summary of care specific to the president. But let's talk a little bit about what does a yearly physical look like compared for, say, what did the physical that Trump underwent look like compared to the one that, say, you or I might undergo. Dr. Jackson said the examination took over four hours in its entirety. So I think it's safe to say that he got a fairly rigorous physical exam, more so than the average 71-year-old American would. But it's a 71-year-old, so probably not by all that much. (laughs) Now we're going to go through, you know, what we say next may shock you. But Praz, I'm going to start with you. Um, How long did it take you to do a full head-to-toe physical exam in medical school? I don't know, between half an hour to an hour, I would say, like maybe 40, 45 minutes. But as an anesthesiologist, my exam doesn't have to be nearly as um, comprehensive. I should start by saying that. And so often I'm in the room and out of the room, under the pressure of time, no less, in about Five to seven minutes on average. It's a bit of a drop from one hour to seven minutes. Now, I, I want to make very clear to all you folks at home. Part of this is because Pras Ward and I all really focus primarily on inpatient care, where we do what's known as a focused exam. You are coming to us with a specific complaint, and our goal is to examine the organ systems related to that complaint. This is very different from an outpatient exam or what's known often as a wellness check, where they really kind of want to take a little bit more of a comprehensive look at you and see if you need a tune-up here or a tweak there, some fluids topped off or maybe drained. Um, We're not supposed to be doing incredibly long exams because if we tried to, we would not have the time in the day to see all the many, many critical patients that were often responsible. I have to disagree. I think all exams should be more or less focused exams, because because more is not better. You kind of have to tailor the exam to the condition, to the situation. And, um, you know, there there are exams, for for example, there are exams for nystagmus and vertigo, and there are nerve exams that take a long, long, long time. But these are not exams you should be doing on anyone who just come in for a wellness exam. I, I can tell you, from head to toe, I can do an exam in about five minutes is long. Like, honestly, like when you do an exam, it takes less than five minutes. And that's a pretty comprehensive exam. If you, if I were in primary care, maybe a little bit longer. But as we were medical students, we're taught to do a lot of exams that, you know, you put a tuning fork on people's head to test conduction of sound traveling through their skull versus through their air. It's, it's, it's a great you know, it's a great example of how to do a physical exam, but it's people don't do, really do it nowadays. There's not really okay, a lot the of exams that take the long. Yeah, the, the the exams that really take the longest in the exams that I do actually do in any detail is the 
the breast exam actually, if you really want to exam, examine for uh, lumps, takes a while. We and the neurological take exam takes a while. Over four hours to do a physical exam. We were learning, so sometimes we did. But, but it was very different at the time. And, you know, before, before those of you at home get a little bit too upset about not receiving a full you know, one hour, four hour exam. Keep in mind that also includes a digital rectal exam. And if you're coming in with heart pain, you probably don't want or need a finger shoved up your butt. And that is, and that is one of only many things that do tend to get left off as we do again, a focused exam. Now, Ward, do you ever do any examinations for workers comp or disability? No, I do the initial doctor's reports. So I, it, it is part of workers comp and disability, but it's the, initial emergency part. Okay. Um, so I've in the past done a couple contract jobs where I have had to examine people for workers' comp and disability things. And those do tend to be more like wellness checks and can take about 45 minutes, sometimes an hour if the person likes to chat, you know, they turn around like, oh, so uh, how many butts you had your finger up today? And or yeah, got a heart in there, doc, or you know, am I truly as heartless as my wife says? Ha ha ha. Honestly, what takes mm-hmm. the longest of most physical exams is just the dumb jokes that everybody loves to make. Now, I know, again, none of us are outpatient and we're a little bit removed from that world. But what would be a typical thing that you would expect included on just a general wellness check? So somebody who doesn't have any particular health issues, they're just visiting their doc for a yearly physical exam, or they're starting a new job, and we're told to get examined. What kind of things would you expect should be on that in terms of blood work in terms of physical exam? What's involved? Well, actually, I do some outpatient work, either through volunteer clinics, or um, (laughs) essentially, the emergency room is half of its outpatient, you know, let's be honest. (laughs) And I've gone through wellness exams myself. Usually a primary care once a year visit includes, you know, comprehensive exam, lungs, heart, abdomen exam, skin exam, plus or minus the detailed scrotum exam. If you are a female, there's a whole female reproductive health exam that sometimes family practitioners do and sometimes OBGYNs do, which includes a pelvic exam and, you know, sometimes a pap smear, things like that depends on your age, we get screened for different things. So if you're a young adult, then just your regular diabetes, thyroid, sometimes people check liver function, sometimes people don't, cholesterol. After you're going into your later middle age, then sometimes prostate and colonoscopy. And some of the guidelines for colonoscopy, and that's male and female, it's recommended every five to 10 years, starting from board question alert. Praz, Ward, do you remember when you should first start recommending colonoscopies? Oh, those are not on my boards. (laughs) Yes. Uh, 50 or 10 years, if a family member has had some kind of colon cancer, 10 years earlier than whenever they were diagnosed. And then the, don't get don't get even get us started on mammograms and the female reproductive. Those can get complicated and depends on who you ask. You might get different questions, different answers. And the guidelines do change. And you know, part of our training yeah. as physicians is to keep up to date with those changes. And these are you know some things that have now been included that were not earlier. Is a hepatitis C test that's recommended by the CDC for everyone born 
between 1945 and 1965. That's before blood products really started being screened. All of this, in addition to checking things like blood pressure, blood oxygen levels, body temperature, muscle reflexes. For most people, an EKG is not part of standard preventative health, nor is a chest X-ray, nor is pulmonary testing. But for the president, they were probably included because, again, this is somebody whose health you're going to be pretty invested in Even if we don't get to find out what the results of all those tests are, they should be done. So, you know, why doesn't the average American get this kind of in-depth care? Frankly, the system's just not set up to accommodate everyone to that. Ordering a lot of tests not only is expensive, but it also has a lot of positive results that don't necessarily have significance. But then they get looked into and then they lead to a whole other chain of events that um, really shouldn't be like you might even end up harming your patient by let's say you get a you get a screening x-ray and that x-ray shows a little nodule and that doesn't necessarily mean anything but then when you do a ct scan it, again it can't, can't doesn't necessarily mean anything that might lead to you know more radiation or and even god forbid you know a uh, invasive testing like you know a biopsy right. that all would not have started if you didn't order that unnecessary chest x-ray. Yeah, these there's a lot of things that we call incidentalomas. You know, they wouldn't have been found without doing a far more comprehensive screening than most people need. Now, the last thing I do want to comment on, and again, it does tie back to President Trump, is, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the news cycles and the comedy shows about how our very stable genius president uh, was were you know there was a suspicion that he might have a cognitive decline or some degree of dementia and he underwent at his own request the Montreal cognitive assessment or MOCA test most of the time it's largely just an outpatient test and it's a 30 question test it takes about 10 to 12 minutes to do so it's not an intelligence test and is meant to identify dementia to help provide additional support services And while I think it is excellent that it was done, and while I certainly harbored my own personal worries about the president's mental condition, this really should not be used as a political weapon. Uh, I don't think it was unreasonable to do, but I'm also willing to accept the results. So it looks at different areas of cognitive abilities that often are affected by people who have dementia, including orientation, short-term memory, executive function, ha, language abilities, attention, and your visual spatial ability. Usually what we tend to use in the United States is known as the mini mental state exam, MMSE, and that's used for screening for Alzheimer's disease. People with 26 or higher are considered normal. If you have a score of 25, that doesn't mean that you have dementia. It doesn't mean that you have a developmental delay. It means that you have a mild cognitive impairment, what in the old days we used to call some mild senility, which again, in old people, not uncommon, and also not, you know, threatening to their health or safety. All of the things that President Trump is saying, he is doing so in sound mind and body. Now, while many of us disagree with those things, he is healthy while making them. I was going to say a cognitive assessment test is I don't, I don't know. In some ways, it's not so different from um, it's a clinical exam. So it's not so different from an eye exam or a you know lung exam. Just the findings themselves kind of point you in the right direction, but they're none of the clinical findings are always um, definitive. Yeah. yeah. 
Just like when I hear a little wheezing, it doesn't always mean you have asthma. Exactly. Could just mean you're out of shape. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, there's a bronchitis going on. So that said, I think that wraps up the White House Oval Office medicine. So uh, hail to the chief, because the chief's the one we hail. Those are actual words. to the chief, because he keeps himself so clean. (laughs) It's from a great movie, uh, Dave. Um, No. Oh, my gosh, no. Uh, (laughs) The joke is, in most movies, uh, most presidential movies, it turns out that a lot of presidents have made up their own words to hail to the chief. And this is a frequent source of humor. I think one of my favorite films is... uh, my fellow Americans with uh, Jack Lemon and oh, I can't remember, not Walter Matthau, but Jack Lemon and one other. And the two guys are playing presidents on the run as a shadowy force is out to assassinate them. And these, it's a Democratic president and his conservative Republican opponent who do not like each other and are forced to kind of be on the run together and go through all of America. And one of the scenes in that film is they both ask, like, so did you ever make up words? Yeah, I made up words. What were yours? And they both have to say say theirs. And one guy was, you know, or hail to the chief because he's the chief and he needs hailing. And the other guy, the more conservative guy goes, hail to the chief. If you don't, I'll have to kill you. Hail to the chief. Are you looking looking straight at me? Um, And they're just, it's a ridiculous film. It's a lot of fun for everybody. Again, regardless of political affiliation, check it out. And uh, that's it for this week's episode. So hopefully that answered questions that you didn't even know to ask about what goes on with presidential health care. If you'd like to know more, there are links in the show notes. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially. Links to do all of those are also in the show notes. Our theme music is produced by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all of my co-hosts. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Happy travels. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.